You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm in the Boston suburb of Belmont, at the home of one of our most admired authors, Tom Parada. Tom, you're perhaps best known for your novels The Abstinence Teacher, Election, and Little Children, and you have a new novel coming out later this year called The Leftovers, but you're also a short story writer. And when I asked you to choose a piece of writing to discuss that's had a big impact on you, you chose Good Country People, the short story by Flannery O'Connor. So for starters, why Flannery O'Connor? What is it about this peculiar, dark, gothic Southern writer that speaks to you? You know, I've been reading O'Connor since I was about 16, and this story, Good Country People, was the story that was first brought to my attention. A friend of mine said, oh, you've got to read this story. There's a story about a Bible salesman who steals a girl's wooden leg. And I thought, oh, you can write a story like that. It it just seemed like an eye-opening thing. I I wanted, I always loved funny stuff. And I think that O'Connor's one of the funniest American writers. I think it took me a long time to understand just how dark and religiously haunted she was. But this story was my gateway into O'Connor, and I would say in a way that it is the the Ur story for O'Connor. She introduces some of her most important themes, some of her most important tics as a writer. So I don't think this is her best story by any means, but it was a story that really captures some of what is powerful and weird and um, troubling and, and interesting about her. Well, let's take a look at a passage. In it, we have three women. One is the mother, Mrs. Hopewell, her daughter, Hulga, and Mrs. Freeman. Would you be willing to read it, Tom? Yes, yeah, so, so Mrs. Freeman is like a tenant farmer. Um, so we're, we're in rural, in the rural South here. Hulga, whose real name is Joy, she's changed it to, I think, represents sort of the darkness of her spirit. She is the antithesis of Joy. She <laughs> wanted to find the ugliest name she could possibly find, and she says this was her greatest creative act, to rename herself Hulga. Um, and her mother is this sort of aggressively conventional, optimistic woman who believes that if you just look on the bright side, you'll be happy and you'll be beautiful. Uh, so it's a bad mix. It's almost like a sitcom mix of people. So this is from the perspective of Joy slash Hulga. Something about her seemed to fascinate Mrs. Freeman. And then one day Hulga realized that it was the artificial leg. Mrs. Freeman had a special fondness for the details of secret infections, hidden deformities, assaults upon children. Of diseases, she preferred the lingering or incurable. Hulga had heard Mrs. Hopewell give her the details of the hunting accident, how the leg had been literally blasted off, how she had never lost consciousness. Mrs. Freeman could listen to it at any time, as if it had happened an hour ago. When Hulga stumped into the kitchen in the morning, she could walk without making the awful noise, but she made it, Mrs. Hopewell was certain, because it was ugly sounding. She glanced at them and did not speak. Mrs. Hopewell would be in her red kimono with her hair tied around her head in rags. She would be sitting at the table, finishing her breakfast, and Mrs. Freeman would be hanging by her elbow, outward from the refrigerator, looking down at the table. Hulga always put her eggs on the stove to boil, and then stood over them with her arms folded, and Mrs. Hopewell would look at her, a kind of indirect gaze divided between her and Mrs. Freeman, and would think that if she would only keep herself up a little, she wouldn't be so bad-looking. There was nothing wrong with her face that a pleasant expression wouldn't help. Mrs. Hopewell said that people who looked on the bright side of things would be beautiful, even if they were not. (laughs) 
I mean, in a paragraph and a half, we're really there in Flannery O'Connor land. And I just want to draw our attention to the choice of words that Flannery O'Connor uses uh, when describing Mrs. Freeman's fascination with grisly illnesses. She writes that she had a special fondness <laughs> for the details, uh, that extra emphasis pushes it over the edge and makes it funny, but you also feel more connected to the character. Right. Well, and there's something very funny about not saying, you know, an obsession with a fascination with a special fondness. It's a kind of a purposely bland word. She says the same. Of diseases, she preferred the lingering or incurable. There's a kind of dry understatement that she uses at moments when things get especially dark and grotesque. So it's a sort of a sly comic thing that, that she does. And, and I think sentences like that become a kind of signature. I mean, one of the things I love about O'Connor, even though she's a writer who troubles me and who I have lots of sort of long-term intellectual arguments with, um, she's got this voice, this sort of tart, dry, comic voice, a little bit superior. I mean, she's a misanthrope, let me just put it that way. I think that misanthropic quality is um, extremely interesting. And as a writer, I'm, I'm drawn to it, but also very wary of it, because I think that it can kind of damn a character or, or confine a character to a certain box that makes it difficult for the reader to see them in a whole way. It traps the character. It does. And one of the things that fascinates me about O'Connor is that I think she realized it. So she has two collections of short stories, uh, Good Country People being the first one, and this story being, in a way, emblematic of her early writing, which was a sort of aggressive, unabashed satire in which characters got humiliated. And then her second collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, you see some of these same situations of grown-up, intellectual, sickly children living with their aggressively conventional mothers which was O'Connor's situation. She had lupus. She had to go home and be nursed by her mother. So O'Connor was also trapped. She was trapped. And early on, you can almost see her like wanting to get revenge for that feeling of entrapment and later feeling guilty about that, trying to get herself out of her perspective into her mother's perspective. So if I were talking to a reader and saying, you know, read Good Country People, but then read Everything That Rises Must Converge, which is a story about a guy named Julian who's a an intellectual, an, an ineffectual intellectual <laughs> who uh, also despises his mother for her conventionality, but then comes face to face with her mortality. And, and the last line is about his entry into a world of sorrow and guilt. And it's a new note in O'Connor. She's allowing her characters to be empathetic. Yeah, though, though she's very funny in her own writing. She talks a lot about how much she hates the word compassion and how compassion often turns out to be a suspension of moral judgment. She never wants to suspend moral judgment. She's a theological writer with a very strict Christian sense. Um, but of course, the, the real paradox in O'Connor is Christian satirist makes no sense, <laughs> right? Because satire assumes a kind of superiority from, for the writer and the reader. And O'Connor definitely claims that space. She mocks the characters, she skewers them, she shows you just how idiotic they can be. I mean, nobody writes like O'Connor about the uh, insufferable banality of small talk. We have this scene that we just read where the mother is thinking to herself, looking at her ugly daughter and thinking, oh, if only she would just keep herself up a bit. And that scene really lets us in to that character's mindset. 
and to the box that it is, the limitations of that mindset. That's right. Later in Everything That Rises Must Converge, Julian has a double view of his mother. He sees everything that's wrong and limited about her, but he also knows that she loves him unconditionally, that she's sort of ignoring all of his faults and flaws, that she is, has a larger heart than his, and he feels, in a way, how small and, and stunted he is when he's near her. Well, it's interesting that you use the word stunted because actually that word came to mind in reading one of your short stories, The Smile on Happy Chang's Face. I felt like the main character had a stunted self, and I'd like to look at that if we can. My take on the main character, whose name is Jack, is that he's just simmering with discontent and angry, but at the same time trying so hard to be heard and failing. He's on the surface keeping up this regular guy persona, but inside he's a nightmare, <laughs> and this conflict is tearing him apart. Uh, would you read the section that begins with Tim Tolbert calling out to Jack? Right, okay, so Jack is uh, a guy who is umpiring Little League Baseball and is way too involved in the game, and it has to do with circumstances in his own life that made him miserable and he's trying to sort of emerge from an episode in his life that shames him deeply and this is so his friend comes up to him when they're about to umpire the game jackie boy tim tolbert the first base umpire and president of the little league pummeled my chest protector as though it were a punching bag championship game he looked happier than a grown man has a right to be very exciting as usual, I wanted to grab him by the collar and ask what the hell he had to be so cheerful about. He was a baby-faced, prematurely bald man who sold satellite dishes all day and then came home to his wife, a scrawny exercise freak obsessed with her son's peanut allergy. She'd made a big stink about it when the kid entered kindergarten and now the school cafeteria wasn't allowed to serve PB&J sandwiches anymore. Very exciting, I agreed. Two best teams in the league. Not to mention the two best umps, he said, giving me a brotherly squeeze on the shoulder. This much I owed to Tim. He was the guy who convinced me to volunteer as an umpire. He must have known how isolated I was feeling, alone in my house, my wife and kids living with my mother-in-law, nothing to do at night but stare at the TV and stuff my face with sandwich cream cookies. I resisted at first, not wanting to give people a new opportunity to whisper about me but he kept at it until finally I gave in. And I loved it, crouching behind the catcher, peering through the horizontal bars of my mask, my whole life focused on the crucial, necessary difference between a ball and a strike. I felt clear-headed and almost serene, free of the bitterness and shame that were my constant companions during the rest of my life. Two best umps, I glanced around in mock confusion. Me and who else? <laughs> That last line, me and who else, it says it all about this character. He's playing this game. Right. If you just look at the dialogue, it's just a banter between men. But then all the internal stuff, you feel the weight of his pain and, and his shame. And how he's forcing himself <laughs> to play this role of the chest-thumping fellow. Yeah, it's the only role he knows how to play. And that's his problem. He needs to find a way out of, you know, he's hidden between, beneath his mask and his protectors, you know, he needs to come out and be himself to, and explain himself, and he can't do it. He can explain himself to the reader in his head, 
but not to the people around him. It does seem to me that he is unable, through the story, to communicate. He is unable to connect. And I just can't help but think about the Flannery O'Connor story that we were just talking about and how she builds these worlds for her characters in which there's no way out. They are sufficiently limited that they can't escape. They're longing to escape, but they can't. And I feel that other of your characters have similarly tried to escape. This is an interesting issue for comic writers. I remember when I, I was in graduate school and, and I first came across this idea of people saying these characters are so limited in a way they're not as smart as, as the reader. And, and I didn't see it that way exactly. I think that even very smart people are quite limited in their self-understanding. It's quite possible to be extremely intelligent about all sorts of things and even the people around you and still miss some crucial fact about yourself. I think um, it has nothing to do really with, with intelligence. And I think people are often a little too self-congratulatory about how well they know themselves and how well they're aware of their own motives. But I also think O'Connor, and, and maybe to some extent myself, I, I think we may gravitate toward characters who, you know, have these limitations. Um, you know, one thing O'Connor never writes about is, say, a successful intellectual, <laughs> right? Her characters are often people who have gone to college. They've had a little too much education to remain at home, but not enough education to sort of fully enter the intellectual life. So she deliberately focuses on characters who feel thwarted. They have a little too much book learning, but they're not by any means uh, successful intellectuals. It's just something you'll notice about her. Her world is a very idiosyncratic and limited world. Um, for instance, sexuality has no part whatsoever in this world. And, and that, of course, O'Connor was a sickly woman, but she was also a Catholic woman who was, had very strict morals. And uh, I guess in Wise Blood, her first novel, there's a scene in a whorehouse, and she said that, you know, very amused way that men would come up to her regularly at reading and say, ma'am, there's a lot you don't know about whorehouse, you know? <laughs> well... Flannery O'Connor was kissed once, and that was it, I believe. That's right. And it's easy to see this story as a kind of response to this one adult affair that she had. And, mm -hmm. and it really makes me think of the story in a different way. Because for a long time, I thought of Good Country People as almost like a kind of precursor of Fox News. I thought of O'Connor as a kind of precursor of Fox News because she loved to humiliate intellectuals and the cultural elite. I mean, she had that sense of there's nothing worse than an intellectual. People have book learning that make them think that they're more sophisticated than other people. And in many, story after story, those people get humiliated. And this is the sort of primal scene. She gets seduced, and her wooden leg gets stolen, and she's just a laughingstock. Um, By this guy who she thinks she's far superior to. That's right. And for a while, I, I really resisted the story for that. It's, just, it's so simple. She just gets humiliated. But when I read the biography and I thought, oh my God, not, it's not so simple as that because O'Connor is seeing herself as Hulga. She's the afflicted, college-educated, superior person but who still wants love and who still thinks she's in control of a relationship that she's not in control of. And she's sort of punishing herself, I think, for allowing herself to be vulnerable. And it's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking to think about that. And you know, it really made me see the story in a very different way. And I think that that doubleness, you know, she's kind of humiliating educated liberals who've gotten away from the truth of God, 
but she's also implicating herself. And I think any satire that implicates the writer becomes much more complex and, and interesting. That position of superiority disappears. And I think that was the place O'Connor was moving toward in, in her later work, this uh, way to keep her satirical tone, but make herself vulnerable. Uh, so what about you? Where are you in that journey? Well, you know, this, it's, a, it's a really interesting question for me because I'm often called a satirist. And I, I often bristle because I don't think I'm mocking my characters. Though just, even just the other day, there was some review that, that just was describing some other writer who wrote in a similar vein. He said, unlike writers like Tom Parada who mock middle-class life, you know, and, and, and I feel like I don't want to be a mocker. Or if I want to mock, I want to make sure that I myself am being mocked at the same time. So that, I feel, is something that I learned from reading O'Connor, but also from resisting O'Connor. There are stories like Everything That Rises Must Converge, which kind of skewer both Julian and the mother, but also see the complexity of their relationship that I think are just masterpieces. My favorite O'Connor story is a story called Revelation, mm. which is a, another rewriting of Good Country People, where the girl who is the version of Holga is in a doctor's waiting area and a woman named Mrs. Turpin, who could be Mrs. Freeman or Mrs. Hopewell, some sort of combination, goes in and starts talking about the difference between black people, white trash. She's constantly making these hierarchies and seeing herself as being at the, at the maybe not the highest place, but very much the highest. And she says, thank you, Jesus, for making me who I am. And the girl just gets so angry and she's a she goes to Wellesley College <laughs> by the way and she's, she's ugly and she's ugly that's right she's got acne they always have to have an affliction and she throws a book and hits Mrs. Turpin but she also calls her a, a warthog go back to hell where you came from you ugly old warthog and Mrs. Turpin takes this seriously really badly the girl has a kind of a fit and is taken off apparently to a mental hospital after this but Mrs. Turpin takes it really hard and, and she's trying to say well how can I be saved and from hell, and how can I be me and a hog? And the revelation that she has at the end is, is a awe-inspiring, terrifying Christian vision of all these souls ascending to heaven, including you know, physically handicapped and damaged people, lunatics, black people, white people, you know, then the, the good, clean, middle-class people like herself. And she's realizing that all those differences are being burned away. And the differences are what give her an identity and what makes her think that she loves God. But really what being saved means is being also destroyed as a kind of social being and as a separate identity. And it's a terrifying thing. And she has this revelation looking at the hogs that they own on the farm. That's right. No, it's an amazing. <laughs> while they're trying to hose away, you know, the excrement and keep the hogs clean. And, and you get in that just the paradox of O'Connor, this misanthropic vision of people and their stupidity and this kind of exalted vision of the heavenly realm where all that is burned away. And, and I do think, again, O'Connor is implicated. She may not be as simple-minded as Mrs. Turpin about, you know, I'm clean and orderly and I have good shoes and I may not be thin, but, you know, I keep a clean house. Or, you know, but, but you know from, from reading O'Connor that she often felt superior to the people around her. That part of the writing is so clear. She is so scathing about recording the banality and the stupidity of the people around her. And I think that was one of her great strengths as a writer, and I think she saw it as a great weakness as a person. And you see her kind of 
working on this conflict in her. How can you be a Christian and a misanthrope? How can you believe that we're all the same, but then mock people for their, <laughs> for their simple-mindedness? You know, her most famous story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, a woman is shot in the head by a, a roaming serial killer, and the killer says, you know, she would have been a good woman if there'd been somebody there to shoot her in the head every day. Um, and that's O'Connor's theology in a way. If you could remember that you're going to die, you might actually be a good person. But it's a horrible, it's a real feel-bad Christianity <laughs> in most of O'Connor. Um, Maybe O'Connor's issue is with her religion and how she views it. It sounds like it's not the most straightforward of religious beliefs. Well, it, it's really interesting. Uh, if you read her letters, she was extremely involved in sort of high-level theological thought. And her letters are almost always you know, trying to bring people into the church, trying to get them to hold on to their faith and protect their faith. I mean, she, I think she really felt threatened by secular culture and really wanted to have an argument about it, though. She wasn't, like, withdrawing into a separate Christian world. And she was a Catholic writer in the South, which made her a little, a little bit different. Are you also a Catholic writer? Well, no, I don't think so. But I, I grew up Catholic, and I think... You know, I had a friend who thought a lot about these things and, and told me that he thought I was, and he thought that what was Catholic in my work was my assumption that people were bad, basically bad. So you're a misanthrope too? Yeah, I, well, I certainly have those um, impulses in, in my work. I fight against them. That's one of the things I think that uh, part of the kinship I feel with O'Connor. Without stretching this too far, let's look at Jack in your story and what he's going through here. To go back to some of the humor in your writing, he's put off by the president of the Little League, Tim Tolbert's sense of self and happiness. He says that, <laughs> that he looked happier than a grown man has a right to be. And to me, that's a brilliant sentence that, again, lets you in so quickly into who Jack is and what he feels about other people and where he is vis-a-vis -vis those people. And I feel that you, at the same time, do create empathy in the reader for both of these characters, both happy Tim, who doesn't seem to have a care in the world, and unhappy Jack, who would be at home eating cookies if it weren't for this man's getting him out to be an umpire. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... What I've always been aiming at is, is to get both sides of it. I, th I think people being angry and the way the world looks when you're angry and the freedom that comes with being angry and saying what you want to say rather than what you're supposed to say is very funny. And I think we all find a kind of relief in it. It's almost like the equivalent of the Three Stooges when you watch people just beating on each other and you think, <laughs> like, there's always some impulse that we're suppressing, which is to say a mean thing, you know? It's like watching Joan Rivers at the Oscars or something. There's, there's something liberating about saying the things that we're always keeping down. And O'Connor allows herself that freedom, I think. And I try to allow myself that freedom, but then also to make clear what's the emotional reality underlying that anger and, and, you know, what might be beyond that anger, what might allow a character to get past it, or, or because nobody wants to be angry like that in a constant way. That anger that Jack is feeling towards Tim in this scene is unspoken, just like Mrs. Hopewell's was unspoken towards her daughter. Similar sort of put down, but she's trying very hard not to show it because that would, you know, violate the rules. And 
I think Jack is impressed by Happy Chang, who does violate the rules and who is released by that. And if we can just look again at that paragraph, we have him as the umpire feeling serene and free and clear-headed and the bitterness and shame that were his constant companions during the rest of his life, I'm quoting from you, aren't there. And this gives him an inkling of what it could be like for him, but he's unable to get there. Yeah, well, I, I always thought that the story was about judgment. And he's a guy who has made some terrible mistakes in his life. He's misjudged what's important. And yet he's been put in this position in this game of having to be an objective, reasonable judge. And, and I think there's something about the pressure of this situation that makes him understand the mistakes that he's made. And Happy Chang helps him to see it. And the emotional drama of the baseball game helps him to see it. It helps the reader to see it, too. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't repair the damage he's done in his life. So there, there's, it's a kind of a limited epiphany. It's a personal one. It's not redemption, but it's something. It's a step away from that anger toward a kind of understanding. And you, you might project down the road and say, you know, something better may emerge for him. O'Connor very rarely would allow that to happen in her stories. It, it almost seems like the characters get humiliated so the reader can understand. She doesn't seem that concerned with the characters, which is one of the reasons why I do like a story like Revelation a little bit more. She seems to be granting the character some emotional space to kind of see and grow. Hmm. Last question, Tom Parada, if I may, about your upcoming novel. Is it a different approach for you? What are we looking at in The Leftovers? Yes, it is a very different approach. It's my version of a post-apocalyptic novel. And, and what I've done is borrow the Christian phenomenon of the rapture and try to treat it in a secular way. Um, what would happen if there were this sort of day when a certain number of people throughout the world just disappeared? And what would, how would the rest of us live in, in the wake of that? And it's really about grief and it's about collective social trauma, but then it's really also just about ordinary people living in a world that is unchanged, except that a few people that they know have disappeared. Isn't that what the world needs, though, right now, to have a whole bunch of people disappear? <laughs> I, I don't know. For the health of the planet, I Well, think. that's one of the arguments that people make within the book. Um, Just not my people. Well, that's it. If, if you could pick <laughs> and choose. <laughs> but then, you know, picking and choosing would lead to a lot of guilt and terror. You know, it, it's an odd book, but it's a post-apocalyptic novel, and it really is about how people go on. In the 20th century, there were many events that people said will never be the same. Life will never be the same after this. And sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. Ten years after the Holocaust, people are dancing the twist. Life goes on. And, and I know that's a cliche that O'Connor would, would laugh at, but it's also just sort of the central fact of, of who we are. And, and we have this desire to say that there's a point after which life doesn't go on, but I don't think we've ever located that point. And, and the story really is, a, it takes place three years after this event. So some people have begun to put it in the past and other people remain obsessed with it. And it's sort of a, just about that moment when people start to forget and move on and mm. how much that costs, but how appealing and inexorable that is, that process of moving on. 
Hmm. Last, last question. Is there anything Flannery O'Connorian about it, about the leftovers? I think the only thing, you know, I, I've always been drawn to O'Connor, as I say, and, and, and one of the things that fascinates me about her, she and Dostoevsky both, you know, have this, they're dark writers who I think are haunted by God, you know, and, and for the most part, I think fiction is not only not religious, but sort of anti-religious. It has a very flexible moral system. It tends to see things from multiple points of views. It, it treats truth as sort of uh, situational. It's been, I think, a kind of secularizing force over time. And so a writer like O'Connor, who is really religious, is, is an anomaly. There are some other Catholic writers like Graham Greene. But I, I noticed that in my last two books, I've tried to figure out a way as a kind of secular, non-believing writer to write about religion. Why? Uh, Why did you choose this? That's a really good question. I, I think because it deals with such important questions. I may also be getting older and I'm, and I'm confronting losses in my own life. I, I'm not sure exactly why. And, and as a writer, this I get from O'Connor too, she often, you know, you don't want to look too closely at what is roiling <laughs> inside of you. You know, I'm a self-proclaimed atheist or agnostic. You know, I don't believe in God. And yet I'm writing a lot about religion. And I think in a kind of a sympathetic way, why am I doing that? I don't know. <laughs> Tom Parada, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Jenny. You've been listening to Tom Parada, the author of Little Children, The Smile and Happy Chang's Faith and Election, among others. His new novel, called The Leftovers, will be in bookstores later this year. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.